Blog Talk Radio. This is Creativity and Play. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. You can find us online and be notified of future shows at creativityandplay.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Creativity Play and download archive editions on iTunes. As we start today's show, I want to give a congratulations to one of our former guests and the composer of our theme music kindergarten, Jonathan Batiste, who was named band leader for Stephen Colbert's new late show this week. So congratulations to him, and check out our archive show if you haven't heard it yet. Our guest today on Creativity and Play is Sheila Bender, a poet, essayist, and author who helps people tap into their creativity to write from personal experience. Sheila is an accomplished author of many books about writing and other topics, including Creative Writing Demystified, and she teaches university courses and workshops about writing for several organizations and conferences, as well as as produces online courses about writing as well. She also publishes the online magazine and website Writing It Real. Sheila Bender, welcome to Creativity and Play. Thank you very much. Well, as we said, you you do lots of different kinds of writing, including poetry. So we wanted to ask you if you would read one of your poems to start us off today. Thank you. I'd be happy to. And I was thinking that I'd read a poem from one of my most playful months, which was a year ago, August, when I had the opportunity to visit my daughter's family who were on sabbatical in Denmark. And she was very busy taking everybody on trips, and that month it included me. This poem is called Pantoum from Northern Jutland. A pantoum is a poem in which uh, lines repeat in a certain pattern, so you'll hear them throughout, throughout the poem. Pantoum from Northern Jutland. At the top of Jutland, where two seas meet, my daughter and her family and I stand with one of our feet in each of the seas to see which of the two is the coldest. My daughter and her family and I take our time before we put in our votes about which of the two is the coldest. We know it is a very close match. We take our time before we put in our votes. My oldest grandson leans toward the Baltic, though the two are a very close match. Sun heats the North Sea's shallower ripples. My oldest grandson sticks with the Baltic. As a baby, he flinched in slight breezes. The sun warms the shallower ripples. I vote just as he does. As a baby, he flinched in breezes by windows. I look at the smile of the swirls of the waves, and I vote now just as he does. Smile at his height, how he's taller than I am. I look at the smile made by swirls of the waves and how the two seas seem a slit in a skirt, while I smile at my grandson's height, how he's taller than I am. My daughter says, not a slit, but a zipper. I see the two seas like a slit in a skirt, while I stand in the sand in the small space between them. My daughter says, not a parting, a zipper, three generations fastened by waves and the water, while I stand in the sand in the small space between them. My daughter says, not a parting, a zipper, three generations fastened by waves and by water, I stand in the sand in the small space between them. Thank you. That's very nice. Great to uh, get that kind of set up into our conversation today. Thank you. Well, it's a poem that required that I play with form, and um, it's unusual for me to write in form, but I really did have a good time doing that. 
and it also has the connections into nature. I was listening to one of the clips on your website where you talk about gardens and nature and the fact that you don't use poisons on your garden, and therefore mm-hmm. everything grows in that garden, and you and you liken that to the process of writing. That, and this metaphor of uh, and of um, of nature and gardening has and and some literal conversations about nature and gardening has been part of uh, a few recent shows that we've done lately. So. It's, it's a nice connection to um, have you read that poem first, and and if you just pick up on on what you said in in the clip on your website about uh, this connection of of um, when when we don't poison our gardens, everything grows. When we don't poison our writing process, our creative process, everything grows. Right, right. Well, well is that the case? And, and how are you helping people get rid of those poisons <laughs> in their writing process? Right. Well, you know, metaphors only go so far, but they lead to other metaphors. And what I'm reminded of, as you mentioned that one, is that for a long time now, I've thought of early drafts in writing as cotyledons, those um, first leaves of a seedling that don't actually ever look like the signature leaves of a seedling, of a sprout. They are their special nutrition-filled leaves, and first the seed uh, grows them, and then the rest of the plant uses the nutrition that's in those leaves. That's how I think of a first draft. Um, you've got to stock it with lots of nutrition, not poison. And poison is the judgmental critic, the editor in us that wants to take things away rather than allow them. And I think if you just keep putting nutrition into your writing, it will, with your attention, grow its signature leaves and its beautiful plant. But it's not going to happen by destroying and cutting back too early. And I think that's what a lot of us do as writers. There's something very scary about thinking we're creating something awful. It's better to think we're creating and see what nutrition um, grows for us. So that's another metaphor I use from gardening. It always surprises me to see my seeds grow, you know, uh, sprouting and then to see what happens with the next set of leaves. So I think of writing that way. And I think of criticizing and judging when we're in the early stages is, well, ever actually, is a form of poison. And, of course, we have to take things out. I mean, you can't have your vegetable garden full of weeds or the weeds will grow at the expense of the vegetables you want. But um, you also have to realize that the shape of your garden, the shape of your work, comes from a sensitive watching and listening and allowing rather than a kind of wholesale spraying of, of criticism. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I love the additional metaphor you've added to the conversation. With the <laughs> Thank you. Makes makes a lot of sense to me, Sheila. And um, your reading, your beautiful uh, pantoon poem is, um, well, I just want to say it's helpful for our, our listeners and for um, me and Steve because we can go back to that now and listen to you. So thank you so much. Um, I also, what you just said about um, gardening metaphor is, well, I'm gardening, I'm doing vegetable gardening and flower gardening right now, and I'm thinking about my writing as I do it and other projects, and um, that's very, you know, what she says, very helpful to my own process. And as a disclaimer, I'd like to say that you've been a very powerful teacher and mentor to me as a writer over the years, and just in general terms in my life that so I really want to say thank you for that. Well, you're and, very welcome. It's something I love to do. Yeah, I know you do. And I want to go back to a little 
a loop back um, because you were talking about critiquing ourselves too early. And I know that one of the reasons I was attracted to you and your teaching about writing um, was because it was writing from the personal, which is what I do and love to do, and kind of my approach to life, um, my playful journey. And um, you have an approach that I've always really appreciated with critiquing um, or feedback that's different than most other writing teachers I've come across, um, where you ask some very, for some very, um, well, three different things. And so, um, well, one of them is Velcro words. Um, Could you talk a little bit about that, how you about feedback. Sure. And what's yeah, I'd love to. Well, it, it goes really back to that idea of growing the writing rather than tearing it apart. Critique means in its root to tear apart, and I think uh, we should stop thinking that way about our drafting. We should think about growing it, and whatever doesn't need to be there anymore will fall away, just like those first uh, leaves on a sprout. Then when they're not needed, they just leave, um, but they've fostered all this beautiful growth. So what I realize that people need in order to grow their writing isn't um, words on how to fix it, but words on what reader response is to what they did. When you give a draft to listeners or readers and they tell you their response in the form of eyes, eye messages, you learn what happens inside them as they read your work. And it it becomes almost like a self-correcting exercise. Little kids, I used to teach preschool. We call cutting with scissors on lines a self-correcting exercise. As the kids' muscles get stronger, their small motor skills, they will cut on the lines. You don't actually have to teach them to do that. It's a self-correcting exercise. They see that they're not on the lines. And when they can do it, they do it. Same with writers. When we see the response in our readers and we either like it or realize it's we've been misleading the writers or not giving them what they need, it's almost self-correcting. For instance, Velcro words. First of all, I don't think any writer wants to hear anyone discuss their writing unless they know they've read it. And being able to say what words and phrases stuck in their mind, not why, just that it did, is one way of demonstrating to the writer that you read it. And it's also a way of saying what they wrote had an effect. It mattered. It's in your head. It's in your ears. And that's what writers need, first of all, I think, to know. So that's what Velcro words are, words and phrases that stick. And in a group, if we give the Velcro words back and we each say the ones that are memorable in our ears, um, it's like a waterfall of, of the writer's own words. And it's a very empowering feeling. And then the second thing I ask people to do is the category of feelings. What feelings are engendered in the listener or reader by the work? The first feeling I want to hear about as a writer is the feelings that are in accordance with what the writing wants to do. Do I feel joy or sadness? Do I feel frustration? Do I feel anger? Do I feel guilt? Do I feel um, nostalgia? Those. It's. Do I feel love? What are the... The, word, the words that I can use to describe the gut feelings I have that I know this piece of writing wants me to be feeling. The second kind of feeling is what I call feelings B, and those are the ones that, because it's a draft, are misleading me. So I might say, I feel left out of learning uh, where everybody was standing during this dramatic scene, or I feel left out of seeing 
what kind of clothes they were wearing in this cold weather. Or I might say, I feel um, misguided, or I feel abandoned, or I, as a reader, um, I feel frustrated. Anything that is causing me not to be able to stick with things, I feel jarred. I feel surprised in a way that distracts me. So I try very hard to teach people to give eye messages. And meanwhile, the writer herself is taking notes, not speaking with us, because once we start speaking to our group of trusted first readers and listeners, we've destroyed their ability to respond to just our writing. We've given them more information. And that's not what we need. We need them to respond to what's going ultimately out into the world without us. And then um, the last of the three steps is curiosity. So I ask people to tell the writer what they're curious to know more about. And very often those very curiosities come from the feelings B areas. Um, I'm curious to know what clothes those were, um, what color they were, how warm they were. Um, and what happens is the writer has an accumulation of information to go back to draft from. It is not the writer's responsibility to to answer every curiosity question. It's the writer's responsibility to be the authority, author, authority, be the authority on what their writing wants to be doing. And if too many of those curiosity questions are taking them far afield from what their writing is about, then they also know that they have to fix something in their writing to keep the the reader from wondering all these things because you don't want your reader wondering too much and, and drifting out of your piece of writing. So... Is that a good enough uh, explanation? Oh, absolutely. And it makes me think about I I work with um, dreams and how people access their dreams and use the process um, that uh, was created by Robert Moss called Active Dreaming at this point. And it, what you're saying reminds me of that process, which is all about play. And so if you can, and so bring and play and creativity, bringing in that playful attitude into these kind of, um, both from the reader's response as well as the um, writer's, um, that that partnership that's going on, the writer and right. the reader. Um, yeah, and it also, requires, it also requires honesty, which I think honesty is more real in the iMessage form than it is in the, oh, I think you should take out this word. It's one thing to say, I felt misguided by that word. I started to wonder, blah, blah, blah. Then it is to say, oh, you don't need that. Um, a lot of you statements and the critic is at work again, tearing things apart. Yeah, it also involves some courage on the reader's part to say what they're feeling. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as you know, play requires courage um, to just break free of these um, limits that have been placed on us and just get down to the authentic. Um, It's fun. I've had people say in a poetry class, for instance, why can't it always be like this? And boy, (laughs) it could be a wonderful world if it was. Do you have another poem to to read? Sure, I'm going to read from that same summer. Um, Sometimes play comes in the form of questions, I think. And I had the opportunity to stand at a museum in this town of Aarhus, and it was uh, a watch case. It was the case of old watches. And so um, this poem is called At the Case of Old Watches. Actually, I think I called it Meditation at the Case of Old Watches. What is now... What was then, what was after, 
and what before, what was belated and what was since, what was yesterday for what tomorrow, what was when and what was a while, and what is always and what was long ago, what is over and what is ending, what is happening and what begins. Mm, That really speaks to me. Thank you. I think that we don't always take time to ask these questions that have no answer necessarily. Um, you know, we've kind of taught to get quickly to an answer, and I think that part of writing is to be in the not knowing and to get comfortable there and to evoke the moments in which mystery arrives. Um, and often when you're writing, you just have a sense that it's arrived. You don't necessarily even know what things mean but you know there's meaning. And I I think that's something every writer needs to get comfortable with so that we're not uh, driving a point home, say, but rather evoking vivid experience. Questions can help. And and even as a means of getting started, the questions just in in your poem alone could could lead to so many separate writing pieces or topics. Um, Yeah, I think you're right. Now I have an assignment. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't mean to give you homework, but uh, I I know that a lot of of your writing and and what you're teaching about helps people tap into their personal experience and to write from that versus other people's experience. Again, in another interview, you talked about, you know, people sometimes feeling like their experience isn't good enough, so therefore they have to write about other people. But but your work really, I think, helps people reconnect with their own experience to, to be creative from that place and and particularly in this case to to write from that place what is it about the personal experience that that does drive the the creative um experience the creative expression um versus trying to find it in other people experiences um, what I think is that i I've worked with a lot of journalists who are unable to write about themselves after years of doing profiles about other people. Um, And I've worked with a lot of people who, as you say, think they can't possibly measure up, that anything that's happened to them is not of interest to other people. And I think what we eventually realize is that what we connect to in other people um, is something about ourselves. So if you're writing about other people, there's nothing wrong with that, of course. What you're connecting with is what you recognize, what what you feel resonance with. And what we have to begin to honor is that when we're writing, we're finding our most vulnerable and authentic self and resonating with it to the point where we're able to evoke it and deliver it on the page. And what I've learned as a preschool teacher was that, um, well, we talked about children and that children are most like adults in their feelings and least like adults in their thinking. And once I learned that, it was like, it was a, a huge revelation. So you can't expect a child to think like an adult, but you know that they feel all the same feelings that we do. Um, and so you start to honor that the, the language you use is important for helping them. And when we're writing, it's like you can't expect people to be on the same side of the fence as you are, but you can know that if you can evoke that side of the fence it will arouse in them feelings that they can identify as the same as yours. So that's a really valuable lesson, and it's a way we can write across boundaries and borders and um, and how it's important to uh, 
say to evoke who we are from where we are and what we've experienced. And in fact, that may be the only way to change people's minds about anything, um, and that it's a worthwhile endeavor. And I, there's there's a lot of work out now that substantiates that. You know, nothing is learned well except in story, for instance. Um, and yet, it's a really hard thing for us to do because it's really not where we go to automatically. It, it, we there's some work involved in getting to that place where you're willing to be intimate and vulnerable and um, once you learn to trust how to do it, you learn that you're very connected to the rest of the world and they're very interested in what it is you have to say. So I hope that's something in the vicinity of what you were wondering about. Yeah, absolutely. And it's making me think about all the people that have entered the presidential race and how to change people's minds and the stories they tell. You might have a consulting uh-huh. figure ahead of you for some of these candidates <laughs> to tell better stories. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> people you... would be more real. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Julie. I was just going to say, if people real. would be more real, um, the world would be a better place. Yeah, um, I'm constantly talking about that. Be real. So I I know that you wrote a book called Sorrow's Words and Writing Exercises to Heal Grief and and you you had an experience that led you to a lot of the work you're doing now, which was the death of your son in a tragic snowboarding accident. Um, and I talked a lot about in my work and, and so does Steve about challenges and how uh, play and creative being in our with our creative selves can help us to um, be with those challenges in a different way in those life experiences that are difficult and move them ahead into transformative experiences and really change our lives in positive ways. So I wonder um, if you could just spend a few minutes telling us about um, what led you to that work of writing about or helping people to heal their grief through writing. Well, that's a long story, but <laughs> try to tell yeah. it succinctly. Um, Well, when I lost my son, there wasn't very much I wanted to do. I'm going to know that I was in grief and shock, but the only things, there were two things I wanted to do. All right, three. One was get up and see the sunrise and watch it set. Another thing I wanted to do was write poetry because it's what I knew how to do. And a third thing I wanted to do was read stories that people were sending me, their memories of him. And... Um, that was restorative. I mean, the world went by without me, and that was a new feeling in my life. Um, But I was very centered in my world of loss. And I really do believe that it was the ability to write poetry that allowed me to transform the experience, to understand that it could be transformative. Um, And I've read a lot by others since then about writing to heal. And one of the things that happens when you lose somebody is you feel that you don't deserve to go on living. And anything that might be refreshing and fun and full of love is not okay because you're supposed to only be sad and in fact give up maybe your best things because that person has lost their lives. But the writing of poetry brought me closer and closer to the fact that the only way I could go on is 
with the memory of my son, and that memory included so much love and play and uh, good times and serious, important parenting times, that that would be what I had to do. And so after writing a memoir called A New Theology, Turning to Poetry in a Time of Grief, um, my intention was to explore how I would go on as a person who'd lost her son, as a person who now understood mortality in a different way, what I would find. I found it. And then I realized I could help other people write and regain their joy in life. And I remember a woman coming to a class um, and saying to me, you know, until this class, I didn't remember any of the good times I had with my husband. I was only remembering his slow dying. And she left so refreshed that that was another lesson Mm -hmm. in the value of this. We are changed, absolutely. But that doesn't mean we don't have all our feelings available. And though grief doesn't go away, it's one of the many, many feelings we have. And I think you can live a very enriched life uh, knowing that all these feelings exist side by side and the knowledge that life doesn't, always lead to tremendous joy doesn't mean life is not joyful. And, of course, most of our loved ones would hate the idea that we were going around without joy. I mean, their greatest wish would be that we could live the joy they didn't get to live. And I remember words by a a high school student who was writing a college application essay, and she was writing about her reaction to the loss of a high school friend. And she eventually came to the idea that it was her job now to live for both of them. And that was before my son died. And I've never forgotten that, that one of the elements of transformation can be an amazing amount of energy because you do have a a sense that you are responsible for carrying their spirit as well as your own. And writing, Mm -hmm. writing is a first step for many people. It's an ability to write your story and their story and relive it. So I hope that is a good answer. Oh, beautiful, Sheila. Especially, I just love that I that carrying of their spirit forward through the through your own writing and through your through your life. Yeah, um, and and journaling. Journaling is so important too for me, definitely. So thank mm-hmm. you, thank you for that. Right. Thank you very much for sharing that that story of how you've cut into much of your own work. And I, I know, as we said in the introduction of you, that you, you connect with people in a lot of different ways through the books that you've written about writing and the workshops and courses you've taught at universities and online and various places. And we mentioned your writing at Real Online Community in our remaining uh, 90 seconds or so. Can you just tell us about that website and, and how people can connect with you there and, and what, what they find in that site to help them tap into their stories through writing as well? Sure, and thank you for the opportunity. Um, after my son's death, I felt like I wanted to make as big a contribution to the world as I could, um, and mine was the ability to help people write. My husband is a networking engineer, and together we created uh, Writing It Real, so that's W R. I-T-I-N-G-I-T-R-E-A-L.com. And it started as an online magazine, instructional articles that I put out so that people could um, access the way I teach about writing without waiting for books to come out, which actually take a very long time. And then I moved to a rural area 
And instead of teaching at a university, I began teaching online classes and realized this was a way to reach people who wanted to study with me but didn't live close by. And it just grew into a bigger and bigger endeavor. And um, I now do coaching and editing and tutorials, and I still very much am happy to be traveling around and teaching people in person. Um, So I just uh, kind of took my... Uh, cue from my son, who was uh, an architect, and he was very involved in helping in whatever way he could with structures, such as a, a bus structure for migrant workers who had to wait for the bus in the hot sun after working in the hot sun all day. And that image stayed with me. I said, what can I do? What What do I have to offer? And um, thankfully, the Internet's um, accessibility and tools have grown, and so it's easier and easier to provide more and more. So um, people who go there We'll see a lot of things, including uh, my own radio show for our all-volunteer FM station here in Port Townsend. My show is called In Conversation, Discussions on Writing and the Writing Life. And we keep all the archived uh, programs up there. So there are a lot of conversations with writers from around the country. That's what I I missed that component when I was looking at your site. Thank you for including that, too. Well, uh, you know... Yeah, I have to do something bigger about that. It's on the left-hand side, and it's called Sheila on KPTZ. I think I should make it bigger. <laughs> thank you. Well, you should. Great. You should, Sheila. <laughs> well, well, Sheila, yeah. thank you very much for joining us today on Creativity and Play. Uh, Sheila Bender is an author and writing teacher and runs the Writing at Real online community and resource center for writing from personal experience. Our theme music is Kindergarten, composed and performed by Jonathan Batiste. And you can listen to this show and previous shows again and find more information about our guests. You can sign up to be notified about coming shows at creativityandplay.com and find Creativity and Play on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes as well. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve Tolbert. And I'm Mary Alice Long. Thank you, Sheila. I encourage everyone to look up, get into, and write, writingitreal.com. Thank you.